Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming out this morning and joining us, especially on such a beautiful summer day. So uh, we, uh, we're going to kick off contracting readiness. Uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, just, I'm going to introduce myself, introduce our panelists, kick it over to Steph. I'm Monica Zent, founder of Zent Law. We've been around about almost 20 years. We're a modern legal services company, pioneering uh, secondment subscriptions, consulting as well as legal tech solutions and have been in the space a long time. Uh, I'm really honored to have this great panel with us today to talk about contracting readiness. We have Lucy Bassley, Deputy General Counsel and Contracting Extraordinaire from Snowflake Computing. Chris Young, General Counsel from Ironclad. Stephanie Lamoureux, Head of Legal Ops at Square. And my co-moderator, Steph Corey. I wanna also take a moment to thank our venue sponsor today, Logical. Thank you so much, Logical, for hosting us as well as our media partner, Above the Law and Evolve the Law. So I'll kick it over to Steph. Hi, everyone. Just a quick introduction. Um, I'm Stephanie Corey. I've spent the vast majority of my career in legal operations. I started back at HP um, way, way back when. I won't even tell you how long ago. Um, and ran their legal operations and was chief of staff to a succession of general counsels. Um, for 11 years while I was there. And then I moved to VMware briefly and then over to Flextronics where a friend of mine took the GC role. I, uh, we'd worked together at HP and he took the GC role at Flex and built the team from scratch. So I'd gone from, um, when I started at HP, the legal department was 200 people. Legal ops was about 15 people all the way to by the time I left, the legal department was 1200 people and the legal ops team was 100 people. So I went from a massive team to um, a solo uh, player at Flex and built the legal ops team from scratch there. So really have seen you know, the whole gamut of what legal operations could look like for mature companies and for kind of startup mentality companies. Three years ago, my GC uh, announced that he was gonna retire and I knew that he wouldn't really retire. So I kind of twisted his arm and asked him if we should start a legal operations consulting business. We'd just come off of the first clock meeting. Um, I was also a, an original founder of the clock organization when I was at HP. And um, we'd just come off of the first conference where 500 people showed up. Um, and I knew that this was, you know, really a thing. Now this is, it's official. And so for the last three years, we've been um, consulting with all kinds of legal departments who are in the nation stage of just starting up legal operations, who are just thinking about what steps they need to take all the way to helping mature companies with, you know, very specific projects. Um, and so that's what I've been doing for the last three years, as well as hosting these events for the last year with Monica. Yeah, so I think we've got some music playing. Uh, oh, maybe we can turn it off. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> we've got enough ambiance here, right? We don't need any more. Um, oh, and the other thing, before we I forget too, there's CLE sign up too. So I just want to make sure for those of you who want CLE credit to um, sign the form over there. Yes, definitely mm -hmm. sign, sign the form in the back. Yeah. Stephanie, you want to give an introduction? Sure. Hi, I'm Stephanie Lamoureux. Uh, again, I work for Square. I lead the team there. Uh, I started in legal operations about 15 years ago and um, kind of developed, well, twisted some arms and developed the function for Gap Corporate. And then from there, I was there for over a decade and then went to Twitter for a brief time until Square stole me and am developing the team there. So I've been with Square for about a, a little over a year and a half. And yeah. Can you guys hear me without a microphone back there? I'll just not use it. Except they're recording, right? We're recording, so yeah. Um, 
Hello. Hello. My name is Chris <laughs> Young. I'm a GC at Ironclad. And before joining Ironclad, I was an Ironclad customer where uh, I was GC at GoFundMe for three years. And then Ironclad was the first software I purchased in my first month uh, uh, at, at GoFundMe. Before that, you know, I'm sort of, I'm a recovering trial lawyer litigator. So I worked at Kecker and Van Nest uh, and did big cases in federal court. Uh, and then have gone in and out of uh, politics. Uh, it's really sort of a pleasure uh, to be here with those of you who are part of our community, uh, not only lawyers, but legal ops professionals. So thank you for organizing the panel. And hi, I'm Lucy Bosley. Uh, I spent 13 years at Microsoft in-house there. I oversaw our contracting operations. I led the legal support for all of our non-revenue and buy-side contracting. And over the course of 13 years, uh, hopefully for the better, really shifted and turned upside down the way we do contracts in a, in a good way. I turned it right side up, if I could say. Um, so from there, my love for contracts grew and all things related to operations. Uh, while I was focused on the domain of contracting, is really all about people, process, and systems. So I got to learn that and then moved into a more general legal operations role at Microsoft. Uh, and then most recently am now with um, Snowflake here in uh, the Bay Area, heading up legal ops from scratch there, where the general counsel recruited me to say, yeah, I want this done and, and done right. So it's kind of an exciting time to, to build. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you guys. And uh, with that, we'll get started. So uh, we're talking about contracting readiness today. We broke the contracting beast into a three-part series. Stephanie and I decided to kind of cover the topic across several different programs. So this first topic is about contracting readiness. Why is it important? Uh, why do you need to think about it? How can it save you headaches down the line? And uh, we're doing this, obviously, this, this community we're building is for emerging legal departments. Some of you are from established legal departments that are like emerging departments because you're doing things for the first time or just beginning with legal ops. So we hope you'll find this useful. I also want to mention that we're going to make the program interactive. So after our panelists mention some comments, we're going to put it out to the audience. We'd love some audience feedback and participation. We want this to be interactive and useful for you, and, and hopefully you get some very practical takeaways today. So with that, Steph? Um, so we'll start with a poll. So how many in this room are kind of in the middle of this, are starting to think about or have gone down the road a little bit of streamlining your contracting process? Okay, quite a few folks. Um, and and uh, how many here have are thinking about it but have not yet begun? Just kind of on, on the very verge of thinking about contracting. So most of you have at least started down this path, I think. Um, and then how many of you have actually implemented a technology or at least purchased a technology, but are you know, at least maybe struggling with the implementation or, or, or working through the implementation? Okay, good, that's helpful. So you guys are all in the thick of it, it looks like. That's great. All right, great. Well, so what is contracting readiness? Let's start with that, with our panel. Uh, what is it, why is it important? You'd like to kick that off here, Lucy? Absolutely happy. So here's the thing with contracts. Everybody's got them. Everybody. Every one of you is here. If you're in-house, you've got them. You might hate them or you love to hate them or hate to love them. Um, but everybody's got them. Without them, your company can't make a dollar. And that's where legal comes in as really enabling the business. That is a role that we can play that nobody else, frankly, at the company has interest in focusing on. They see contracting as a necessary evil. It's just this step that has to be done in order to make that first dollar and then all the subsequent dollars after that. Not to mention all the other 
types of contracting, right? That's just the revenue piece. That's usually the first one that people focus on. Then, of course, we know we have the whole buy side. We've got our favorite NDAs. They're also important to have very different NDAs from two pages to 20 pages of NDAs. And I appreciated signing one just to come in here today. So there's just so much progress that can be made in an area that is so necessary to just get business done um, that to me, it's, it, it's an easy place to start. It's overwhelming. It's a complex problem. So it's not easy to fix, but it's easy to start. And it's easy to show the value that you can have to the rest of the business. Because but for the business, legal doesn't exist. We are not there to be the best lawyers and to operate the best legal department. Nobody cares. If you can touch that bottom line somehow through your operations, I just think it's, it's such a great place to start when you're thinking about legal ops. Great, thank you. Steph, anything? Yeah, I would say for whether you choose to do it right now or later, um, there's a lot of components of why you would want to focus on it now. And I mean, Lucy stated, obviously, for revenue and recognizing that revenue. In prior lives, I've worked for companies where they were not able to recognize all that revenue and you know it was there. So you are having a negative impact on the bottom line when that happens. But there's also the risk components of whether it's regulatory risks or visibility to you know, the, what's actually happening, the metadata that's in some of these contracts so that you are alerted when, hey, you're gonna get stuck into a contract because you've missed the cancellation uh, time period or, you know, the, there's other components that might like just keep you from, um, I guess, like just having some of those risks. Um, and the other thing is, as you, as you get larger, it's only going to become a bigger problem and more tangled and more people that are interacting with you. So you're going to have more stakeholders that you're going to have to, you know, have way in. Um, right now, if you're still very small, you will be able to kind of set the tone of the process that you want and you can influence the other functions easier more or more easily. That doesn't mean you shouldn't still be bringing those stakeholders in. They need to be brought in and recognize that, Stakeholders and other departments do have a component. Um, even if they're not directly involved, there's little pieces that they should be, so bringing them in early. Um, the last thing I would say is visibility. You know, GCs, it's becoming more and more of a demand of knowing not only from the metadata, but also from the workload. Like who, if you have someone that leaves your team, goes on vacation, where are those contracts in queue? Are they, is someone else able to step in? Um, if not, then, you know, I mean, that visibility is a huge risk. Um, and it's also, I think the balance of life, being able to have someone that can have your, be your bench. So I would say it is a huge project to get started and it's overwhelming to even know where to start. Um, if you already have a system and it's not working well, then it also feels cumbersome because you're, you don't know how to basically make the case to like, okay, we need to, we need to scratch this and start over. Um, so we'll, we'll get into some of those other components um, as we go through some of these questions, but yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, one thing, just an, uh, an observation and seeing what companies are here today, um, companies are focusing in on this stuff earlier. And so rather than waiting, you know, till you've got 10 years worth of contracts to deal with that are stored all over the place, it seems like there's a lot of small companies who are just, you know, solo GC or GC plus a, just a handful of people. And, and so I think you guys are right. They, the focus is earlier on making sure that things are set up properly, which is great. Um, 
So in your, in your expert opinions, what are the specific priorities legal departments should be considering in order to streamline their process? <clears throat> um, so there's many things to think about um, in terms of priorities and how to rank them. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about was what Stephanie just acknowledged, which is gone are the days when legal departments are flying blind. Um, today is the day when we can actually leverage data uh, to not only mitigate risk, but also to help the company strategically, to help make sort of, you know, sort of strategic business decisions. Um, and again, that's not only sort of protecting the company's, say, assets by um, sort of preventing auto renewal from happening on a contract for services that you no longer use, uh, but also um, so that you can actually determine how your legal department is faring. You have that transparency now. You have the ability to see who is overburdened with work who has time to do something else. You can allocate resources and you can prioritize within your legal department based on this data. But the critical piece is actually finding a way um, that's efficient, an efficient and effective process to collect that data so that you can search against it or draw inferences from it in the future at any given time. And so one of the things um, that's important to me is ensuring that my legal department is a data-driven legal department, which I think is something that many other departments in the past have talked about. There were days when marketing had no data and we're sort of shooting from the hip and seeing what sticks. Um, there was a time when Salesforce didn't exist uh, and sales representatives were using spreadsheets. Today is the day when actually modern legal technology has come head to head or at least presented itself uh, to the legal department. And so in terms of prioritization, data is critical. But what does that mean? It means actually going out and determining what departments in your organization want what type of data from your contracts. Because uh, as Lucy said earlier, every company is a contracts company and every team is a contracts team. Every department or component within your organization sits on top of various types of contracts. The other thing I would say in terms of prioritization is starting to, and we'll get into the next question, but sort of socialize the idea. In other words, um, start to convey things to stakeholders like, hey, you know, there was a time 10 years ago when cybersecurity risk wasn't a thing and you didn't go through audits in advance to determine where your blind spots are, where your weaknesses lie, where your strengths are. Um, I think we're going to see a day in the not too distant future when we look at contracts through a similar lens. Where are we? Let's audit our contracts. Where are our risks? Where are we overspending? Um, where where does our, do our liabilities lie for the most part? Um, and so again, you know, not only data and leveraging data in terms of prioritization and preparing to implement a contract management system, uh, but also um, starting to get people used to the fact that uh, it is absolutely critical to be able to have insight into and to be able to gather um, uh, data from uh, your contracts that are spread throughout uh, your entire organization. Yeah, and, and actually, Chris, excellent point. And um, it reminds me of, what's this on? Andy Wilson, when um, I first went out on my own, it told me, he's the CEO of Logical for those of you. He told me to read the book, Start With the Why. Yeah. And that's one of the first things you see when you um, get off the elevator here is why. And that's exactly what you're talking about with the data. What's the story you're going to tell? And, and what do your clients want to see? And, and I think that's such a great way to look at it. So Steph, if I could just add, um, we're going through this right now. When, and uh, the questions we're asking are, okay, what's the real problem we're trying to solve? Contracts are just a mess. They're all over the place. We can't find them. I'm like, aha, 
is finding the number one thing, but we don't know where we have different obligations. We, I don't know. What did we commit to certain things? I'm like, aha, you know, obligation tracking where, what, what is that first problem? Because it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. Like I said, it, it's not an easy problem to solve, but it's an easy place to start solving problems. Maybe that's the way to think about it. So I would just advise if you think about your priorities, they're going to be different for each of you at your company. What's keeping the general counsel up at night? What's keeping the CFO or CEO up at night? Is it because they can't find something when they need it? Or is it because they don't know what they agreed to? Uh, or is it because they just don't know what their general risk tolerance is and there's, there's no way to kind of assess it? So I think if you can hone in on a particular problem and make progress there and target that, you'll have an easier way because systems and solutions are great. There's, they're, they're often solving multiple problems. So focus on like the one where you can make an impact is what I would say if you're really trying to prioritize, you know, and, and, and get going on something. And, and I would add something there. I mean, I think that um, not only is it important to communicate with the folks within your legal department, not only is it important to communicate with other stakeholders within the organization, it's also important to communicate with each other. Because although your companies are different, there are going to be some similarities. There's going to be some best practices, some tips and tricks you can share with respect to prioritization and just about everything else we're talking about today. So I want to encourage you all, even after this event, to stay in touch and to bounce ideas off each other and see, see, see what's working for your peers. Yeah, great point, Chris. And on that note, we are creating a, and formalizing a community uh, of attendees who've been to these events. So we will be you know, creating that, that very community. So, so far, we've got some great tips on contracting readiness from Steph about talking about you know, what your stakeholders, what's the stakeholder input? Do you have systems that are inherited? Evaluating those, whether they make sense. Great tips from Chris about data. What kind of data is important to you? What do you want uh, out of that data? And, and questions to ask, as well as Lucy's point about what are some of the whys in there and, and what, are, what are the problems you're trying to solve? And so all these are critical steps in the contracting readiness phase. So moving into sort of the next question about, you know, once your program has some executive level support, how do you get the buy-in? How do you get the buy-in um, on that front? And, um, and how do you get the budget? How do you fund this effort now? So uh, Chris, Lucy, you guys are nodding. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll do a quick one. I think we probably have all kinds of similar experiences. Um, my favorite way to get buy-in, um, it's probably you have to do this after you get some budget. So I'll let somebody else take the how you get budget. Um, but it is about data. I mean, how you get budget is you're going to have to prove something, right? So I'll, I'll just give you that spoiler alert there. Um, you know, I'd say from my best experience has been buy-in is through easy small wins for which maybe you don't actually need budget. Process tweaks, getting some friends around the company in different areas, whether it's in sales or procurement or finance, to kind of say, you know, if we can work together on this and make some process tweaks, let's get some clear roles and responsibilities. Let's help each other do different parts of the contracting process and take on slightly different, you know, tasks. You can make incremental improvements right there you're going to have an easier time getting broader buy-in. So I always say start with small wins, start with the cheap ones, which is usually people in process before you have to even touch technology. I would add to that. I mean, you might even ask your IT department. There might already be resources that the company has leveraged that won't be an additional cost for you that might be that interim process that you could leverage, um, whether it's JIRA or, you know, even if JIRA is like a ticketing system, a lot of your... A lot of companies have JIRA and we use that for some of our contracting processes just because that's what our procurement team uses. Um, so, you know, you can leverage that and it might not be an additional component. The budget, well, it's always been easy for me because I've 
basically manage the budget. So I just put it in there and then wait for there to be any sort of pushback. And there usually isn't because I, I should have been an attorney. I can like, I can make my case for everything. So um, the budget side, I mean, this is where, you know, connecting with your, your, um, your leadership in your department. I mean, most attorneys are going to recognize the risks with on the contracting side. This is an easier one to actually make the case for because they know the risks. They know like as, you know, from a regulatory side, you might have audits that you're, you need to know where it is. I mean, most of you probably were impacted in some way with GDPR. If you didn't know where your contracts were or what was contained within them, then, you know, I think that was, um, that was just a great, use case of why it was important. So building the case of why you need it is probably not that much of an upward battle. Um, understanding the actual like how much to budget, you know, I would say that most people they budget for maybe just the licensing costs and they don't recognize that you also need to think about implementation costs. It might be a one-time cost, but it's still sometimes sizable. Do you need a consultant that you might need to um, help you through the process? Uh, professional services, a lot of um, software um, companies, they actually have professional services to get kind of a, a a heightened level of service. Um, and that can be ongoing. You know, you might, you want to, might want to invest in that. So thinking of those different components for the budget, um, a support model, um, that's going to be incorporated into that as well. So that, that should be part of your plan to your GC or whoever you're pitching this to, because if you don't have the support, and I don't mean that just from um, you know, who's going to be in the system, who's going to take care of it when there's issues, like there's technical bugs or um, the administrative back end. Uh, so all of the, all of these components need to go into the budgeting um, process. And if it's, if it's well mapped out, then they think you know what you're talking about, even if you don't, and uh, you're more likely to get the budget as well. So um, I, I totally agree with what um, the panelists have said so far. I think that there's a couple ways to look at it too. There is the path where you know you have budget that fiscal year, uh, or you know you're preparing for the budget for the next fiscal year, and you have an opportunity to make the case to your direct report, be it the GC or otherwise. Um, obviously, that's an empathetic ear, right? They understand risk. They understand the value of allowing a machine to do a lot of the work that your highly trained lawyers are doing. Um, and so that's a pretty clear path to success relatively quickly. But I think a lot of folks struggle with actually getting the spend or the budget approval necessary to procure um, a contract management system. Um, and I think there are so many different ways to try to approach that, but a, a, a couple high level observations and tactics. One is, you know, legal departments are seen as cost centers, not business centers. We are spending money, not generating revenue, right? And so with that comes um, challenges with respect to compelling the resources you feel like you need to run an efficient, effective legal department. So that's a hurdle you've got to overcome. That hurdle um, gets a little bit higher when you realize that, um, you know, legal departments are meant to sort of protect. And if things aren't broken, then folks don't feel like they need to be fixed. Um, so what do you do with that situation? Because of that dynamic where you're a protector in chief, that's your core responsibility. Uh, it's very difficult to sort of present data to get budget approval. What data does the legal department have really? Right. And so I think one of the things to think about, and you mentioned this, um, Lucy is starting small. Um, 
working with whatever vendor you are working with or poised to work with and figuring out how you can um, sort of set up a, a sort of a cost-effective pilot, right? Maybe it's just taking those pesky NDAs, which none of us read when we signed uh, on the way in here, but folks say they're important. Um, let's just streamline those, right? Let's work with a vendor just to streamline those. And in that process, let's be able to measure before and after. Or let's be able to measure, hey, if our business team uses an NDA on our paper through process metrics data, you can determine, well, it takes a couple days to turn it around. If our business team uses third-party paper, it's going to take nine days. That's going to change behavior, right? Suddenly, if it takes less amount of time, and you can tell that it takes less amount of time for, someone to, for, your, for your department to turn uh, an NDA, you're going to use your own paper, and you're going to get to close a deal faster. That is one little anecdote or piece of data that you can collect from just a small pilot that, that, that allows you to manage your NDAs. So you kind, of, you kind of crawl right before you walk and then you sprint, but each step of the way you should be proving to the folks who you know, control the purse strings that this was a wise investment and this is helping us save time, um, it's helping us be run more efficiently, uh, it's allowing us to sort of run a, a little less risky uh, as quickly as we're moving to the finish line. And basically, one nice thing about contract management systems generally, and this is a pitch uh, for, say, finance, is if you can prevent five auto renewals from happening, and they're an average of, you know, $20,000 a year, then you've saved $100,000. So while you're not generating revenue, you certainly can point to the money that you've saved, and I think that would be appreciated. The final piece I'd say is it's not just IT. Um, that you can partner with to try to figure out where there's budget. Where are the biggest budgets in your organization? Probably sales, probably marketing, right? The revenue generators. If you can actually meet with your sales operations lead or your VP of sales and say, hey, here's a situation where you no longer have to perceive legal as the bottleneck. Here's a situation where your stakeholders, your business owners are armed with the tools necessary to spin up contracts and to go through the process without legal's help. What does that mean? You're closing deals faster. Your sales cycle decreases. That is a win for everyone. If you can make a compelling case to your head of sales, he or she may have the budget, likely does have the budget to chip in a bit and to help you get the funds that you need to actually procure a system. As long as you're keeping those processes and you're measuring, um, you're probably in pretty good shape. So there's multiple ways to go out there and it's gonna really depend on your organization, the politics within, the, the various level layers of controls, um, but, um, but there, there are a whole host of different ways you can uh, address the sort of lack of budget situation. Thank you. And I want to open it up to the audience now. We've talked a lot about contracting readiness so far. Do you, any of you have any thoughts on additional sort of uh, steps in contracting readiness that should be considered that haven't been touched on? Great question. What what the panelists? Uh, when we when I implemented at Microsoft, I definitely partnered closely with the uh, procurement team and finance, and they pitched in. And it was not solely on legal. And then we moved it into the corporate cost pool. So legal wasn't maintaining it going forward at all. It really wasn't hitting our budget. This was a company-wide um, cost, basically, which was a I gotta say, huge coup. Like we when we made that happen, like this is real. Everybody gets it. You know, whew, but it's. It's a discussion for sure, and you have to make all the, the cases and the benefits. 
I, I agree. I mean, it's uh, in a prior life, uh, it was actually a project I walked into when I started at the company and it was enterprise wide. I think this is also the difference of, are you choosing to roll the system out initially enterprise wide or are you going to start small and have it kind of within legal and then, you know, kind of get your ducks in a row and figure it out and then blow it out to the other orgs? The, the thing is, even if it's just legal, you know, I, we did tap into our procurement, our sales, and they did pitch in. Um, we had them do a budget transfer though, because ultimately there was a lot of politics and we wanted to make sure that this was something that legal was seen as the owner and the final decision maker on the process. Um, because this, this is our, our contracts. And while the stakeholders definitely have a say and we care about that, uh, we wanted ultimate say to, stay with legal. So after we got that money, then it was a budget transfer. Then it was in our run rates for the year. And it was easy to build the budget from there for uh, subsequent years. Uh, so it kind of depends. Are you going enterprise? Are you staying um, within your own org? Um, but I, I do think you should absolutely because there, it is impacting them um, positively. And you do want them to be able to feel like they have a voice in it and can contribute. Um, and by them paying the way, then I think they, they're more likely to be invested in the process. So just a follow on question on that for the panel. So then in light of that, who, who would you say kind of owns the, the system or who owns the responsibility of, of architecting what that system looks like and the data it collects and, and all of that, any thoughts? Uh, legal. I mean, in my case, it was, again, for, for the owners, we have key stakeholders. We have people who need to contribute their requirements or they have a role in the process they have to play. But it all comes down to a really neat and tidy governance framework that you have to put together. You have to have a nice little neat and tidy racy chart so everybody knows who's accountable and responsible. But I do like the sense of uh, owner, I mean, control issues, right? That's why we're all here. Um, so I, I do believe, you know, legal was the owner and they were perceived, we were certainly perceived that way. Microsoft is certainly being perceived that way where I am now. Like, oh good, you're here. You're going to solve our contracting problem. So I think legal is the right owner. actually working with one right now where IT is um, putting forth the budget to put the system in place because it's a software system and at this particular org, IT wants to have all of that under their purview, um, which works out great because legal is notoriously known to have zero budget, right? We're a cost center, not a cost center. So um, IT, um, but I've also seen, for example, once you start rolling it out, um, different departments that may want different pieces of the system built out more that can help them more. Say for example, like a data migration where you're bringing in the historical contract, say one department wants all of their old contracts to be implemented um, in the system. So they have actually paid for that service. Um, and then on the second question, definitely I think legal owns the system but um, it's also a really great opportunity to partner with the different business units because you can work with them to say, okay, what piece of data in your contracts would be useful for you? What if we made a deal that tracks contracts related to your projects, your um, programs? And 
and then helping design the system to where if we can track that metric, if it doesn't, it isn't too laborious or legal to track that piece for the business, then that's a great opportunity to get a champion on your side within the org, outside of people, to think that the system is great. And that just that will help you roll it out and adopt um, with adoption, all that good stuff. So there's a lot of opportunities there. I absolutely agree that the one component that you have to, I would caution is when you open that door of like, Hey, you can track all these things. Then people want way too many metadata fields to make it sustainable. But depending on the workflow of how that system works, you might be able to have it where, Hey, these, this metadata is actually filled by whoever in the org is wanting to get the contract done um, and it's collected along that workflow so that it's not so cumbersome on just legal. Um, your, your comment on, in, better, so yeah, it, right. There's now several different players out there that kind of do that. Um, the component on, that you said of like having it paid by IT, at Gap, that's how it was. IT, one, if you wanted a system, uh, you had to basically make the case that it was going to be impacting three different functions of the company for them to pay for it. But then it was on their technology roadmap and they paid for the original implementation of that, that process. You would have to pay for the ongoing licensing or if you had any professional services or any of that. But they did do the first heavy lift and they and part of that whole process was they wanted to know what what technology is happening in the org and i actually think that's smart um we don't have it that way at square and a lot of startups don't also have it that way and the the downside of that is you might get a lot of duplicative tools across your org and that's also a cost um so you know i mean it, it, I think it depends on the size of your org on whether they've gotten to that stage. Um, that's definitely more of a mature stage. But even if IT was paying that initial bill, it was still owned by legal. We were the, the keepers of that system in terms of like the decision makers. We, we actually helped one client build. <laughs> we actually helped one client build an ROI where they were saying, you know, we could change out this process, but it's really, they're a big client. So it was only costing them 300,000 a year, which I know for a lot of you is like, wow. But uh, for them, it was, it was, you know, just a drop in the bucket. And when we did the ROI, we looked at all the workarounds, like you're saying, and all the other soft, the people were buying their own software to deal with this stuff. And every, uh, this is, was a company with many, many divisions. There were 12 other campuses in California. And so we went to each one and saw all the workarounds that they were doing. And they actually had to hire additional people to manage a lot of it. They thought the cost was 300,000. When we completed the ROI, it was $7 million. And so it was a much stronger case. And so, you know, you, you have to look as you guys are building the ROI and making your business cases, really have to look at absolutely everything. Um, attorney costs, in-house, hiring additional administrative people to do it, hiring professional services. There, there are many hidden costs that people aren't seeing, you know, that it isn't, it isn't obvious. Absolutely. Sure. sure. I think we have time for maybe one more comment. Oh, sure. Okay, yes. I just wanted to follow up on, on that comment because that's exactly true. With legal technology, it's so easy to prove your ROI. Just look at why are you implementing this tool. Um, for the business users, something like contracting, you're going to get buy-in from the business users by saying, look at how quickly we can speed your turnaround time. You don't have to wait three days. Now you can do this instantly yourself. Um, and then with finance, and with your leadership team, it's easy to show your ROI by, we're using attorney hours to do this right now. 
and you don't measure the savings on your in-house attorneys because they're going to be working full time, all your overflow is going to outside help. So if you look at your average outside counsel costs, what are you spending? What's your average time to review a contract? And then just base that on your average outside counsel hourly rate, you get a very, very impressive ROI, like Stephanie was saying. And it's hard for anybody to say, no, we don't want to do that. Um, if you go through IT, it's definitely great to get their help, but you're going to have a hard time getting on their capitalized prioritization list. Um, if you go to a third party and just do it yourself in the legal department, it's a lot easier to sell. Great points. And I know we had a comment over here. Two out of the three legal companies that I've been to um, in a legal department, uh, it's the IT teams that owned the prioritization of supporting new software. Um, and that was a hard stop. That was enterprise-wide. And so back to what you were saying, you were asking about, I think you need to understand how your specific company, where the give and takes of what you can and cannot do, right? And so once you understand that, you know, if you are at a company like Elizabeth was just sharing where you have an option as legal to self-fund, fantastic if your GC can get that money. But if you are at a company where there's a hard stop and no one can get past that, even your GC, then probably the better solution is exactly what Chris alluded to earlier. Go and talk to other executives to make the case, not just like the people, you know, boots on the ground people like ourselves trying to implement, but go and talk to the executives to get their buy-in so that when that IT prioritization effort happens company-wide, you're looked upon as a higher priority because of how many different touch points and benefits there are. And so um, I just wanted to share that because it was a hard lesson to learn when I went from one company that did it one way to another company. It's like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> we can't do that. Um, and, and my last company went from being a place that had flexibility where you could self-fund to one that moved into a hard, hard no um, because they were maturing from a starter, you know, starting um, company mentality to one that was trying to achieve maturity. Um, and so just know your company and know where you can go and where you can't go. So let's unpack this a little bit. And for the panel, uh, and we talked a bit about you, you know, you've got your budget, you've got some buy-in, you know who's going to sort of own the technology, own the process, and, and, and the, own the contracting process. So now um, getting a bit tactical, what are some of the steps, if you were to break it down, um, what are some of the real practical steps you have to execute to be able to um, start your contracting readiness? Yeah, Stephanie. I would say the first, I mean, we stated this earlier, why you're going to have to answer the why later so you might as well like make sure that's your very first step um you're gonna need to obviously align the budgets get that all ready then um i am a big proponent that you need to have a committee of some sort and this committee shouldn't just be legal it should be your stakeholders and other parts of the org as well so that they people can weigh in people want to know that they have kind of a, a say in what's going to happen to their future, right? Um, so bringing people along the way is super critical. I mean, change management is probably the most fundamental um, step for almost any process, whether it's from the contracting readiness to anything, anything that you're rolling out. Um, having a very detailed communications plan, 
right from the beginning, making sure people are aware, whether they are part of your committee or not, making sure they're aware of what's coming and how it's going to impact their lives, um, ensuring that you have kind of a timeline, recognizing that people have day jobs and, you know, there are going to be delays. It might not always fit to your, like, you want this rolled out in a quarter. Well, the people that you're relying on, your resources might not be able to achieve that if they also have other things that they're focused on. So making sure that you're being realistic about your timeline, um, having, you know, starting to build out uh, playbooks and um, different, um, for me, template harmonization is super important. You know, a lot of, sometimes you'll get, and I hear this from attorneys all the time, like, oh, this is just this, there's too many unique contracts. Like this is just too unique. And you know, that might be true in some respects, but there is a lot that is the same from contract to contract um, that you can still have at least certain clauses that are harmonized across the org and is a good starting place. Um, having, I wrote these down so I wouldn't, um, having a detailed support model like this, I've seen be really kind of a, a bottleneck or a roadblock um, if you haven't figured out how this how this tool when once you do have it how it's going to be supported um, are there administrators are they in IT are they in your team are you going to use outside people um, having um, having that like detailed is really important DRIs um, in your change management plan you should have different deliverables for uh, the process and who owns that not only who owns like executing it, who's the decision maker when that's needed, making sure you know exactly who your decision makers are and what they're and making sure they understand what their role is in the process. Um, I would say that also then the requirements documentation, right? Like this should, for us, we're, we use G Suite. So having a Google doc, different parts of the org might have their own tab within the, the Google sheet to be able to contribute, making sure that people are truly weighing in early. Uh, you don't want to get too late in your project and then you start socializing this amongst all the different orgs and they're like, wait, time out. I didn't know this was happening. We need this. And then it creates a roadblock for that, for your launch. You might have to reiterate on some of your process designs. Um, Workflow mapping, having it somewhat mapped out. And this is where consultants are super helpful. And I would, I would actually bring consultants in early. They've already been down this, they've been to this rodeo before. So they can, they can really help streamline some of this and help develop the change management plan as well. Um, I do all of the requirements building and before we ever go to demos, I, I want all the requirements documented and for us to have kind of current state uh, process flows developed and then then we go to for me and other companies might do this differently but how with any tool then I go to like an RFP process essentially right like I make the different whoever we've benchmarked in the for different vendors then I send them a questionnaire and they basically need to be able to pass go on all of our basic requirements. Can you meet these basic requirements? And if from that pool, those that can, then we will go to demo. But I usually don't do demos too early. And the reason why is if you're bringing a lot of people in, they get just, I mean, 
they get enamored by all the bells and whistles and it's typically salespeople that come to do the demo. And so it's, I also require with demos for them to bring a product person. I, because I will drill the salesperson to death on like functionality in the behind the scenes. And a lot of times they can't answer my questions that I have because they're more technical in nature. So I would also make sure that you are bringing um, someone having whatever, you know, te technology company that's coming in to pitch and do a demo for them to bring a product person. Um, I, I mean, the demos just happen later for me. I, I really, I want, I want to make sure that you can pass, you know, our basic requirements first. Um, and you might have to realign um, the timeline at some point. You know, I think there's iterations of this. If you have a detailed project plan and change management plan, um, then that's easier to do on the fly and people know what, you know, you know what vacations are coming up. You know, you know what workarounds you're going to have to have. Most of like through, I would say if you're really diligent, getting through all of like the budget, the approvals, the, you know, requirements documentation, the process mapping, all of that will probably take you a good quarter unless you have a dedicated team that can just do that. Um, it'll probably take you a good quarter and then in the next quarter you can focus on actually doing your selection and demos. And I like all my demos to come in in the same week. I want it fresh in people's memory. I will survey the team after to have them give like real time feedback on what they thought of the demos. Um, and then from there, then it's selection. And do you sometimes adjust? I do exactly that same process. I think that's the absolute right way to do it. But then I let the people I'm working with and I want to know if you do this as well. Once they see the demos, obviously there's some mm -hmm. stuff in there. And then, so that business requirements document can be a little bit fluid because yeah. then there's some things obviously. I mean, I think that's why it's important to have your requirements right. as well as your wish list, right. right? Like the requirements are requirements and they have to meet those. Mm -hmm. But the wish list, I mean, that's why when the demos, yeah, you're going to get, they're going to add to those business requirements because then they're going to, oh. Why didn't we think of that? This is also, I mean, leveraging the clock network or any of the networks. There's so many networks now for legal operations, ACC, um, Monica and oh, yeah. Stephanie, like there's so many, um, there's so many peers that you can. I mean, I actually even got from Ironclad, uh, like, you know, a doc that they have that they um, want to say is almost like your RFP, I don't know, a template. We got a template from you guys and I got one from a couple other vendors. and. I'm basically going to merge all those templates. I'm not going to start, you know, reinventing the wheel. I'm going to merge all those templates and take the best parts of each of them and we'll create our own. So, you know, um, there was, I also would like to say it depends also if you are revamping a current system versus starting wholly new. Some of you probably walked into a system that just is not working for you. Um, that's kind of the state that we're in at Square. Um, and so we'll be going, we're actually starting this evaluation now, right? So through Q3, we'll be getting, getting through this and it'll be a determination of, do we actually do basically a re-implementation, a reboot of the system that was implemented before my time, I'd like to say, um, or, or do we go with a new tool? Um, and it's a harder, the ROI is actually harder to like state and to get budget for because your GC's like, well, we already have a tool. Why isn't it working? Why aren't people using it? And that probably came down to the fundamentals of not having a, an appropriate change management plan from the get-go. And it will be the measure of success or failure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Definitely. I mean, that's why contract readiness is so important. <laughs> so they don't buy tools that nobody is using. Lucy, Chris, anything to add on that point about is practical tips for Stephanie covered them um, for sure, uh, and that was very helpful. Um, you know, the only thing that I would add, and I would sort of just break down high level, is internal communications, and importantly, external communications. I'm obviously partial to Ironclad. I was a customer. I'm their GC, but I'm a GC, and I get hit up by salespeople all the time. And you can be sold this this dream, this vision. Uh, and unless you're going to, unless you're able to verify that with your peers, um, you could be setting yourself up for embarrassment, if not failure, because adoption is critical. If you're going to go through the process to prepare, you're going to get the budget, you're going to build consensus, and then you're going to go through implementation and disrupt a lot of people's lives, potentially, to get the system up and running, the last thing you need is for it to fall flat uh, at the finish line. Um, and so I can't emphasize enough um, that the proof is not only in the pudding, but you're not going to get the pudding until after you've signed the contract. The, really, the proof at the earliest stage is talking with your community, with your peers. Does it work? Are people using it? Are there hidden fees, costs? And importantly, this is critical for me, um, legal technology is emerging rapidly. So the question isn't just do they check all the boxes of our requirements today? The question is, can they evolve as our business evolves on a going forward basis? And if they can, A, which they say they will be able to, so verify with your community, B, ask how much is it gonna cost and how long is it going to take? Because when you're building out workflows and the regulatory landscape is changing before your eyes and you need to add a clause or a provision or a property to an agreement, how long is that going to take? How much is it going to cost? Are you getting the post-sales customer service that we all should expect as legal practitioners. Um, and so those are my two pieces, internal communication, really verifying with your community and be, be forward looking. In addition to your sort of your, your table stakes, look at what things might look like in the future and how quickly um, your vendor, which should be seen as your partner, can adjust and how much is it going to cost you, if anything. I have a couple points to add too. We see this a lot at Zent Law with our enterprise clients as well as the emerging clients. Uh, whether it's contracting systems or processes or lack of process uh, that they've, you know, we end up inheriting and helping them to refine or helping them to build it. A couple things is thinking about risk tolerance for the company, thinking about what your risk matrix is. A lot of times with organizations, they start to build templates, start to sort of come up with standard language, but they don't really have a cohesive risk tolerance around what is sort of their, their acceptable level of risk. And, and that, that defines the positioning as well as helps with harmonization of templates. We're a huge advocate of that. We do a lot of that too. So definitely um, assessing what the risk is for the company and, and your appetite for risk and how that feeds into the different positions. And then the other uh, thing that we often see is sort of not having a very clear process around what is your sort of signature protocol, what is your contract life cycle, who needs to approve what, at what stage are they brought in, who needs to sign off on the contract, at what stage does that get approved, and, and what is the process around that? And sort of defining that up front in your contracting readiness phase is really important because then when you start jumping into looking at systems, you know, that's going to also help govern eventually what that system looks like, uh, how you architected, who's going to be involved in the system, what notices are they going to get. So there's a lot of that work that you can do in the readiness phase in terms of identifying what is your process. We're going to get into a few questions about that shortly, but uh, as well as risk tolerance. And, and I, so my next question is twofold, and it kind of um, 
um, feeds off of the answers that you guys just gave. So the first is, um, as you're looking at your processes, um, do, did you guys take any steps while you were doing this readiness work to kind of come up with service level agreements, so to speak, of what the legal teams would be doing, what the lawyers would be doing versus what the business people would be doing? Um, and, and even like, we're not going to review contracts under $10,000 or something like that. That's totally, or these are business terms, you know, we, we're not doing it. So come up with kind of a roles and responsibilities. Did you have that discussion? And then secondly is any, for any part of that, if the legal department did decide to take that on, did you consider outsourcing any of it? Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so to the first part, this goes actually to what Monica, I think, was making a super important point at the end. You have to understand your own rules, your rules of internally, your own, you know, call them policies, thresholds, whatever it is. You have to get that um, locked down before any system. I mean, honestly, the systems part should be the last thing you're doing. I mean, with, with all due respect to all the amazing systems in the room and up here on the panel, it's you can't implement a system until you know your process. And that's just a, that's just a fact. Um, so yes, number one, you have to understand your own internal policies. Setting up SLAs is one of the best wins that you can actually offer to the business if you're trying to get funding, if you're just trying to get them to play nice with you. If legal comes to them and says, I will promise you 99% of the time, you know, we do these type of contracts, I'll get it back to you in three business days. Set up an SLA, it is risky. Not all lawyers in your departments are gonna be happy with this approach, but the business will love you. That's all they care about. Let's be super clear on that too. They could not care less about the quality of the contract, and I'm not saying that to be flippant. They just don't, they expect you to take care of that. They don't care, they have no judgment or assessment on, on the contract. Time, speed, time, speed. No more black hole, predictability. I don't wanna know, it depends. I don't wanna think about who in legal has it. They don't wanna mess with any of that. And to be able to give them an SLA, they will love you instantly. So absolutely, yes. Even if you have none right now, start, you know where? NDAs, you said it's my favorite one to pick on because they are stupid, okay? <laughs> they are, we should be able to shake hands and say, I'll keep your stuff secret if you keep mine. That's the deal. But we have pages and pages that we have to review and sign and edit and automate and put in a system and then find. I mean, it's, it's, it's dumb. Start there, huge win. Your sales team will love you immediately. So yes, SLA is big, big, big fan of them. Even if you can do an easy squeezy one that you know you can nail, sandbag it and do it. That's one. Um, the, all of the things about the policies, the who should sign, the mechanics. People hate dealing with that. I don't have a donkey sign account. No, you should do it, Sale. You know, go get your account. No, they'll end up just finding some nice person in your legal department and they'll end up doing it and it'll become a total crutch. So fix those little easy squeezy things first, right? Those are super, super easy wins. Um, the second half of your question, outsourcing. Absolutely. So the last example I just gave, they're going to find somebody who's going to help them get the signature process done. They just will. And it'll become a crutch and it'll probably be somebody in your department. It might be you. Don't do it. Don't, don't aid and abet that situation. But what you might have to do is realize you can't always train the people to fish. That's a lovely proposition and training is wonderful and it should be done. And ideally with reprimands, if they don't follow your new process, absolutely all of that is good. Sometimes you just need to find people to do it for them. Cheaper, faster people. And they exist. They are out there. So outsourcing was a huge secret to my perceived success at Microsoft for sure. I had a whole 
army of magical Smurfs and elves that lived in a little forest under a mushroom somewhere that nobody ever needed to know about, but they got stuff done overnight, four-day SLA, four-hour SLA, eight-hour SLAs, whatever I defined for them. And it was extremely cost-effective. So places to start on the actual review. Obviously, there's a ton that can be done with automation now that didn't exist 10 years ago when I first outsourced contract review. So cheaper eyeballs, they're out there. Automate what you can. You're going to still need eyeballs for most systems, uh, especially for the review part, but you can definitely um, outsource that. If you're not ready or your legal department's not comfortable outsourcing legal review because you should have a lawyer look at an NDA, don't let them convince you that, but whatever. It happens. Um, go with the administrative things. Help people sign in store. Help them sign in store. Don't worry. You got it. You're done. It's finalized. Do that for them. And the only way to do that is with cheaper alternative resources for sure. So I'm a big fan. There's a risk for them though, because automation's moving up the value chain too. So look ahead. If you're going with a cheaper resource model, that is a perfectly good place to start. But look ahead. How long are you going to keep using those cheaper resources when um, automation catches up? So you have your, your plan, but do what's cost effective and, and uh, speedy now and my smurfs i just are also awful what if they hear me calling them smurfs undo delete they're actually alternative legal service providers als oh, or law companies or legal services companies and i i take issue with law companies because actually they don't practice law but anyway um soapbox aside um i went through an rfp process this was again gosh 10 years ago um when people weren't outsourcing contract review they were outsourcing due diligence and kind of like mass, massive high volume work, but we were the first ones really in such a scale and Microsoft to say, no, I will trust you to review my statements of work. And we did, we went straight for the, for real documents um, and we went through an RFP process. So there's tons of names out there. There's the United Lex, the Integrions, the Elevates. Those are kind of the big ones. Pangea was just bought by ENY. I mean, there, there's tons of them or for smaller companies and, you know, with all due respect to all those companies who are doing really good jobs I just mentioned, there are small niche white glove solution providers as well. And I think those should not be um, ignored. So that's a whole new path. I and think. I have a, a relationship with most of them. So if you ever have any specific questions, um, even the smaller ones that Lucy's talking about, there's some good small companies out there who are doing it. I'm happy to share. Um, so I'll just be a little vulnerable here. I'm a second time GC. I don't know a lot and I don't think that I'm going to know a lot for a long time. And I say that because it's really actually a pretty cool opportunity to try to piece together and run a lean and efficient legal department like of the modern era that's leveraging technology machines and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really excited about not knowing what I don't know. Um, and so to that end, I, I actually am incredibly excited about the legal operations community. Um, and, and the elevation and the quick rise of this community. My first hire that I just made uh, is not a lawyer, it's a legal ops specialist. It's first hire. First hire. Uh, and I may hire two before I even yeah. hire my first lawyer. Um, and, and the reason is, is because I feel like you have to establish a foundation. You have to establish the infrastructure. You have to establish the processes and the controls before you bring in other lawyers if you're going to make the most of those lawyers' time, energy, effort, expertise. And so that's one piece. The next piece is uh, I, I am looking forward to continuing to uh, and others to sort of learn, sort of they have institutional knowledge, what works, what doesn't, right? And so while on one hand, I think there's a lot of wisdom um, and, 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 and it's definitely worth your time to think through what an SLA would look like. 
On the other hand, it's also nice to lean on folks who've seen multiple SLAs in all kinds of departments of all shapes and sizes and to recommend certain SLAs that may have worked for a company with which you're similarly situated from a size, revenue standpoint, whatever it may be. And so uh, I've just begun my journey uh, on building sort of a modern legal department, but I look forward to actually working uh, in outsourcing work. I'll, I'll also uh, sort of give a shout out to my legal intern, Michaela, who's sitting here on the left. Uh, she's from USF Law School. Um, and this summer, in fact, we're bringing in um, a, a bunch of her peers that are gonna help us with this type of review. So when you think about it, law students, right? They just took, especially first year uh, law students, they just took contracts, right? And many of us, <laughs> right? Like, it's like, I, you know, it's like, you know, so it's like, do you like contracts? Some say yes, some say no. The ones that say no, I know you're honest, you're probably hired. The ones that say yes, we'll, we'll put you through another round of interviews. But the, but the truth, but the truth of the matter is, is that these are folks who are gonna come in and are gonna uh, look at these sort of um, low or high volume, sort of uh, low legal touch contracts with minimal risk and actually start to cut their teeth on what it's like to be an in-house lawyer, at least within the commercial contracts space. So you can outsource overseas, domestically, you could also leverage uh, law students uh, who, who seem to be interested in this type of work. And that's a steady scene of work if you actually put together a program that's efficient and, and effective. No shame in loving contracts. <laughs> Some might really love them. <laughs> Great points, Chris. Well, uh, yeah, that segues nicely into our next question about aspirations. Do you, when you focus on contracting readiness and refining your contracting process, should you focus on facts or aspirations? Do you you know, sort of adopt Chris's strategy, build, you know, start with aspirations, sort of get set up your department the way you want it to be set up? Do you have to sort of deal with what re what's reality? How do you balance that? So, panel? You know, I think it also depends on, I mean, if you have the luxury of being kind of the first one, I mean, I would love that. I would love to be the very first one in the department completely and just set up everything <laughs> how I want. Uh, that would be, that would be amazing. I actually have seen, you know, startups reach out to me frequently about whether or not I would be their first legal hire, not even like to the GC, but just their first, wow. um, which I think is super cool because, you know, we can engage outside counsel and direct work, you know, for the legal stuff, but we can also set up that foundation. So if, if you're in that, if you have the luxury of that, then I think aspirational is, is great. If you're established in any way, then I do think, I, I think aspiration keeps you energized and is important, but I think you first need to start with the facts. You need to know where, like, where do you stand? What are your issues? What are you trying to solve for? Um, and getting that documented before you become too aspirational. Because you might, you might bite off more than you can handle or make successful if you, if you don't kind of align your facts first. So, I mean, I think both are critical. I would just do them in a sequence of facts first, then aspirations. Second, if you're more established. If you're super startup-y, then maybe, you know, the facts aren't as, as critical and you can just, you can venture into that aspirational state. But I do think facts are important. Anybody else? Um, so actually, let's open it up to the audience for a, a second. Any thoughts? Yeah. Hi, Chris. As a law professor sitting in this room, <laughs> I have lots of law students for you. So, they absolutely do. And, and and in more than just getting law students who want to work with all of you, it's also about teaching them what they need to know to practice law. Um, especially, some of them may want to go into legal operations. And so, my question to you all first was, how 
like how many lawyers do you actually hire legal ops? Is it is it a JD advantage job? Is it good to have some lawyers and some non-lawyers? And then what would you look for in, in terms of hiring someone recently out of law school, with skills that they need to know that right now law school is not teaching? Yeah, all kinds of good stuff in there um, to unpack for sure. Um, I'm going to just, just, so it's interesting your question about uh, the JD preferred and, and that, that whole concept. I think right now, of law schools are doing a disservice if they're not educating law students on the potential uh, other career paths that they can have. I think that training in the law school sets a fantastic foundation for going into legal ops for sure, the problem is that it's only the foundation on the legal side. We're not setting them up for success on the various business skills that they need in, in the legal school yet. Again, not because the law school has to do it themselves, but they could partner with the business schools. And I, I don't have to preach to, I know, I know you get it. Um, but I think I'm of them. So I'm an attorney that went kind of crazy and love process and data and became this like freakish unicorn lawyer, I was called by um, my own team because all of the folks on my team weren't attorneys at, at Microsoft towards the, my end of my stint there. They're like, lawyers don't talk like you. Don't, you don't get it. And they would whisper in my office, they're not like you down the hall. You know, they don't, they don't understand data. And we try to get them to understand. They, don't, they can't read a Visio chart. You know, it's, <laughs> that's, it's true. Or Excel, God forbid, like okay. a spreadsheet. <sighs> so I think that there is a magical set of skills that can be combined. I'm not leaning one way or the other, whether if you come from a business, you know, an MBA degree, you, that you can't be legal ops, or if you don't have a JD, you can't be in legal ops. They're not mutually exclusive. At the end of the day, it really comes down to a person's natural curiosity and uh, aptitude for learning. It really just does. I mean, we were talking about this, right? It's about the people, right? And this feeds into your next question of what are the kind of things that you would look for when you hire? Curiosity, hunger, efficiency-driven, logic-seeking. Because, like, you know, the people are like, why do we always do it that way? There are those who think it but will never ask it because it's not in their nature and they're afraid of the answer. You don't want them. They will not do well in legal ops. Conformists will not do well in legal ops. There's an entire slew of completely intangible skill sets. Because if they're curious, they'll learn to read a spreadsheet. If they're curious, they'll learn how to do their own Visio chart and click like crazy till two in the morning because they want to get it to look right, whether they're an attorney or they're an MBA grad. So I can go down the laundry list of all the skill sets that are needed and they should be able to read financial statements and they should be able to run a project and that's out there. Everybody can find those online. But you got to be curious. You got to want to do stuff differently. Um, you have to be comfortable asking uncomfortable questions. You have to be ready to be told no, get knocked down and come back up again. I mean, that's just, unfortunately, that, that's the magical answer. So MBA, JD, BA, BS, BS, there's a lot of that going on. Um, yeah, I think it can go either way. I, I do say the one benefit that you get when you're kind of this weird lawyer in disguise amongst legal ops pros you get a better chance convincing lawyers. I hate that that's a reality. I hate it, but it is still true. We don't want to use the word non-lawyers anymore. Alice, you did it. I'm going to let you slide this time. But we don't want to do that anymore. We have professionals that are in the legal department. Some have JDs, some practice law, some have JDs, they don't practice law. So I think we need to create more fluidity. Clearly it's a soapbox. I'm sorry. I'm almost done. Uh, but I think it's just the only way we're going to make progress uh, is to really stop with the division of who, who's an attorney and who isn't. I do think not just having a JD, but having actually practiced law, even if it's a year or two, 
you will get further in trying to convince attorneys in the department. I hate that it's true, but it is true. It is true. And I, I hate that it's true as well. I'm not an attorney. And actually, when I was back at HP, there was one instance where we were revamping my department and I was going to have an attorney report to me. And the GC at the time, this is almost 15 years ago, said, oh, but you're not, we can't have an attorney reporting to a non-attorney, which is asinine because she reported to the CEO who's not an attorney. <laughs> so, um, but that being said, you know, that, that was the, the that was absolutely the truth. We still, it's, it's shifted, of course, but we still see that today for sure. However, one benefit, uh, looking at it at completely the opposite end of the spectrum, one benefit that I found for myself was when I was acting as chief of staff, which is a little bit different than legal ops, right? It's that trusted advisor to the GC. I, so I was chief of staff and head of legal ops. And the chief of staff role, I think I was far more successful being um, an other legal professional. Um, and, and that's because I, w I was really close with the deputies and they never saw me as a threat. I was there to advocate on their behalf. And I think part of that was because I wasn't an attorney. I could never take their jobs. Um, and so they, they always saw me as an ally and somebody who could advocate on, the, on behalf of finance, marketing, who, HR, whoever we were working with. And so there were advantages to that. But yeah, I think you're right, Lucy. You know, I, it's interesting because I also think it depends on the culture of your company. Um, at, you know, at Gap, hierarchy was much more important than at Square. No one knows anyone's level. No one knows if I'm an attorney or not. And it doesn't matter because the culturally, they, it, we, the ethos is, this is, if this is your job, then this is what's expected and everybody has a say. Um, so it's very different. Like, I don't feel like I, I've ever been... Um, not, I don't, I don't need to convince anyone. The attorney side doesn't even matter. In fact, I think people see me more as an expert in my field than in their field. They didn't hire me to be an attorney in practice law. So I think they actually value my say in what I'm, what I'm presenting and how we can operationalize something actually more than they would had I been an attorney, then they might be skewed of like, oh, well, you think like an attorney. You know, so it's different at Square. But at Gap, it was much more of like, you know, things go up the chain of command and back down. The difference is my general counsel, she always used to tell me I'm the glue that kept the department together. And it was because I actually had built relationships with every single person in that department. Of 116 people, I think I'm the only one that knew like had a personal relationship in and outside of work. Like I knew things about their personal lives. I had taken the time to truly get to know people. So my credibility was strong. And so even though they, it was hierarchical, I kind of fell outside of that. And people that were also other legal professionals often asked, how do you not like fit into this hierarchy that everybody else seems to? And I think it's because I had built this relationship with people in the department at all levels and treated everyone exactly the same. I don't care if you're the CEO or if you're the admin in the group, I basically am going to interact with you the exact same way. And I think that also built my credibility and, and then just getting things done. But yeah. I love the question. And, and I think so, and I just went through this process and it, it was pretty fascinating, but I think it depends on the company, the stage, the culture. For me, I try to hire to cover my blind spots. So I hire folks where I know that I'm weak, where I know that 
I want someone smarter or more talented than I am in that particular space to fill that slot on the team. So legal operations to me is no different than anyone else on my team or will be team in the future, I should say. Um, they're an extension of the team, however, and that's important. So one thing, culturally, do they fit, right? Which is nothing you could really glean from a resume but it's something you can pick up on in an interview or a coffee for a law student who's curious about this career path. Um, because you're an extension of the legal department, you are the legal department and you're an extension of it and you're working cross-functionally, that's part and parcel of your job. And so if you are representing the cultures, the values of your legal department within your broader organization, that's a win. Two is, again, intellectual curiosity. Like, and a lot of law students are, and particularly those who are even interested in the legal ops career right now, I think this will be a thing in three years, five years. But right now, these are, these are folks who are thinking about something new uh, that's not as popular, that's not being talked about as much in the law school hallways. Those folks are intellectually curious and have some sort of career risk tolerance that I find uh, pretty, uh, pretty um, uh, inspiring. Uh, the other thing is, um, and so that's, those are the basics, just because I got an application from a woman who's finishing up uh, a clerkship uh, on the Federal Northern District uh, Court that's her first she wanted to apply and i was like wow this is incredible and i look forward to having coffee with her at some point but if you are intellectually curious and you work hard and you're a good person um then you can learn a lot of what it takes i think to be uh, an effective legal operator now if you are a larger uh, more well-established company that's a different talk track that i'm not sort of well versed in now the final thing i'll say is I get really excited about, so when I look at folks like a guy named Dan Wright, who is the GC of App Dynamics, and now he is the COO. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a really cool career path. I look at Belinda Johnson, who I don't know, but I followed her career, and she was an early lawyer at Airbnb, then a GC, then chief legal and business officer, and then COO. So if you're a lawyer, and you have a JD, and you're interested in business, and you want to get exposed to all aspects of a business, good, bad, ugly, great, um, and you may have career aspirations that may not fit neatly within legal, but maybe an extension of legal, i.e. a COO one day. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. There are very few positions in an organization that could liaise with, build relationships with that many different stakeholders within the company. So I think it's an exciting opportunity and to see this profession sort of blossoming is, is, uh, is pretty exciting. Great. Any, and great, all great comments. Any other uh, questions from the audience or comments? Yes. Um, I was just uh, sort of two-part question. One, um, if you have any recommended resources um, to think through developing the process. So um, I'm uh, two months into a new position where they implemented a system last year. So we're not we're not getting rid of this one. We're going to make it work. Um, but there needs there's where things are not working is around process and procedure. And so any suggestions you have um, for me to what resources to think about that would be great. And then um, the second part is just in terms of what you do for who is administering the database. Um, I think I thought going in, we would have some sort of contract administrator or multiple people. The way it's set up now, they've got people all across the organization implementing contracts. And that seems crazy to me. So I'd love your feedback on that as well. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, I'll jump in on this one quickly. So for the first question, resources, um, 
you know, Steph alluded to this, this might be one where you want to bring somebody in who has a completely objective eye who can help you map process, map the current state in a completely objective way. We go so much by anecdote. Oh, they hate sales, hates it because they, and you just kind of like, there's this frenzy of frustration and you throw those things out as reasons. And it's just not as beautiful to show a really, really ugly, you know, flow chart and big red marker of like waste, waste. Well, that's Six Sigma talk, but like opportunity, opportunity. Um, but this might be one where you should think about uh, looking outside for some help. And so map the current and then map the 2B, the 2B with all of your stakeholders who are bought in that that's the 2B. That would be a, a pretty decent place to start, I think. Um, then your second point about yeah, assist the administering the system. So again, going back to my earlier comment you can really keep trying to teach them to fish. You can keep trying to go this, um, you know, system administration by democracy approach. I'm super jaded. Nope. Nope. Contracting aristocracy is where it's at. You really need a tightly centralized team of super efficient, super cost-effective resources, internal or external. You can figure out what the right model is for you. But I think, you know, it's, it's not about taking away the power from the people. It's taking away stuff that they don't want to do. They are not good at it. Marketers are not going to be good at their contracts. Programmers are not going to be good at their contracts. So I'm just a super firm believer if you could fast forward ahead. I could save you that, I think, pain of trying to teach everybody how to fish. I just don't think there's value in it at the end, depending on size and culture. Again, if you have a hard-handed CEO, it's going to say, whatever legal says, you all better do, and there's going to be reprimands and some public flogging for those who go outside the system, you might win with the fishing. But I just don't sense that culturally in many places. So that means do it for them if you can get some resources and, and be really cost effective. Yeah, ex that's exactly what I was going to say, that if you have the executive level sponsorship, that kind of puts a different spin on it. And Jane, I actually have somebody on my team who will process map for you and come in and do all that. So if you ever want to talk, yeah. The one comment I was going to say, I think that's the hardest situation to be in. When it was already implemented, the change management plan was not built out effectively. And then you're kind of like, how do we support this? And it, it, everything becomes harder. And then people are already so frustrated and overwhelmed by the process and are basically the naysayers and negativity breeds negativity. So it, everything becomes harder. Um, it's why one of the most critical things is really change management of any, anything. And your change management plan should have communications, should have support levels, should have, you know, the process mapping. All of these different things are part of it. People need to understand what they're getting into and how it's going to impact their lives early on so that you don't get to the stage where it's been implemented and now you're trying to figure out what the process is around it. Um, I think it just, it, it will be one of your largest roadblocks. Just want to add something briefly. Um, so this is a new world, contract management. I am relatively new to it and learning things daily. Um, but this is a central part of legal. And it is one of the things that people are going to look at and then judge legal on. So I think for every organization, there are, there's bureaucracy, there's politics, there's inheriting a system, there's inheriting outside counsel. And one of the ways I think about it politically is... Yes, maybe you're just fixed on going down this well-beaten path or you are just delighted that your team's forward thinking enough to have technology to help with the process. But one of the things I've seen happening in the market, and this goes to what the future looks like, not necessarily what's worked in the past, but what the future looks like, is experimenting 
with other systems and approaches in parallel. And it goes back to the point that I made a little bit earlier about super small pilots, baby steps, and testing. Because if your organization is already forward thinking enough to implement software or to be poised to implement software to handle this work, you're already one foot in the door. The next step is to prove that it works, to prove that it's a value add. And sometimes the train has left the station and there's not much you can do other than seeing how that plays out. But you can also dual track things and figure out, talk to the community, figure out what other folks are using, whether it works so that you have a fallback plan if that system that you've deployed isn't adopted like you thought it would be or there are issues that arose that you couldn't anticipate at the time. Um, so I've seen this happen at a lot of um, organizations where they're like, hey, we use it for this, but we're interested in something more flexible and nimble, so we're gonna try this, or we're gonna try this, or we're gonna try that. So I wouldn't let that um, be the exclusive system per se, but just one of maybe others that you test and then decide on one because centralization is critical and you can't have a bunch of different software doing similar things. That's just my two cents on that point. Any other comments or questions from the audience? Yes. How do you get your team of attorneys to kind of get out of their own way to do what's best for them and buy into, you know, I guess what's going to eventually save them a lot of time, a lot of stress. Uh, you know, I find a lot of the times that they don't want to, you know, put in four hours of work when in one week when it's going to save them eight hours every other week after. So what do you do to get their buy in, especially you said you were thrown in kind of, you know, with implement, you know, processes in place. You know, they don't even have time to talk to you sometimes. So what do you say? What do you do? Do you have to have, you know, kind of a champion in house, you know, throw them maybe a case study and say, Hey, look, this is what happened with him. It saved him time. So everybody's different, different problems. You can't just throw a survey. So I would say champions are critical. I mean, and sometimes I target the people that are the biggest naysayers as my person that I'm going to win over first and get them to be, because when they become the champion, then I mean, everyone else is going to be easy, but yeah, champions and more than one champion. Sometimes if you have more than one attorney in one practice area, you might be able to work with one to really try to kind of build out the process and then, you know, and don't try to boil the ocean right from the get go. You know, like Chris said, like maybe just starting with one contract in, and maybe not in the group where the people are, kind of the most resistant. You know, there's always going to be someone on the team that is a little bit more innovative or wants to try something and work with them, build that one out. And when it starts working well, then people start like, oh, and you, then you have some of the metrics around it. You have the ROI. It, like when that person is then able to say, gosh, you know, I used to spend like all this time and now, and can actually show them right? When someone can visually see something then, and especially attorneys, right? They're, they want to, they want to just scour through something and pick it apart. Well, when they can visually see like what the process is going to be and that it's really working, then they might come around to it. But I start with others sometimes too. Make it work. Here's a little tip. And I, and I don't like it outside of this sort of scenario, but uh, <laughs> fear works. It works. So seriously, I mean, it does because lawyers like me are up at night wondering what we're missing, what we don't know. And when the legal department, again, is a cost center or at best cost adjacent, you're really getting attention when something's screwed up, right? That's when the spotlight shines on legal. It's not because you did, you changed your terms of service to prevent there from being class action. Like it's just, it's just not, you're not getting any props for that. 
you're actually getting a lot of uh, criticism if things go wrong. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's just take GDPR. The vast majority of companies have probably gone through that process. Let's just take a very simple case study. Don't put it on their desk. Don't have them read it. Just a few snippets in an email. So first thing is notice. Attorneys are about notice. Like if we have notice that there's a flaw in efficiency and there's risk associated with it, you're on notice. So then if something happens, you're like, hey, I'll let you know, here's the email, right? So the second thing is little case studies, little snippets, real life examples. What are we gonna do if there's a data breach? And it's Saturday and you're at Mission Dolores Park and playing Frisbee. And we have 10,000 contracts, 20% of which have some sort of DPA or some sort of reporting obligations we owe to some third party if there's a breach. And let's just say that it ranges like it does from 12 hours to 72 hours you are gonna run afoul of those reporting obligations. Um, you know, if, if you can't quickly identify all those needles in a haystack and act appropriately, like with a few clicks, not with like, let's go to the office and pour over all the contracts that are siloed off and on people's desktops and in there, whatever, right? And so like notice is important and identifying how you can mitigate risk and real life examples of the consequences of that unmitigated risk, like in a target data breach or Equifax. Like you can read about it. There's plenty of like examples in the press about what happens to companies and executives if they are not meeting their legal and regulatory obligations. Okay, great tips. Attorneys respond to risk as well as ringing the uh, compliance bell for sure. I would also like to add that honestly, this is where your executive buy-in is super important. When they're like, sorry, this is your job. You need to you need to comply, and this is where we're going. Then it's then they don't get to just not do it. It has to be like it's enforced from the top down. Well, yeah, I mean, I do too. But at some point, and you can do it nicely, but there does need to be like it needs to culturally be like okay, like this is something that's also being supported by your GC in some respects, and these are the reasons why for all of what Chris just said. You know, I mean, it's not. I agree. You don't want to be the like dictator necessarily, but it is like, you also have to make the case. This is where we're going. This is what we, oh, yeah. Yeah, so we, we are at time. Uh, and I would like to thank our panel today, uh, as well as the audience participation. Appreciate uh, the time that you guys all have taken. It's been a great discussion.